Welcome back to Discovery Debrief. We're now here into episode three. I am co-host Chris Clow, and I am joined by Rachel Clow. Hello. Cicero Holmes. Free all rippers. <laughs> and Zaki Hassan. Good evening. Excellent. So, uh, wow, what a week that we have had, especially over the last couple of days on this show. But as I think we will uh, will do as a custom, why don't we begin with what our week in Trek was like for everyone else? So, Rachel, you actually started the audiobook that I talked about last week, Star Trek Discovery Desperate Hours. What are your first impressions? I like non-emotionally scarred Michael Burnham. <laughs> like, she's kind of happy. She's kind of like has banter with Saru. It's nice. All right. Yeah. This is, it's definitely uh, a, a new kind of perspective on her just because we... I mean, it's kind of weird. That book is kind of weird just because it's going kind of deep into the character without a whole lot of appearances for us to fall back on as far as who she is. But definitely gives more context, I think, right? Yeah. Yeah. Zachy, the invariable question of whether or not you continued your broadcast order rewatch with your kids, I think this is just going to have to be a regular I thing. <laughs> Did you keep it going? Uh, I'm very disappointed. I, I was all queued up and ready to go. And then, of course, life gets in the way. Uh, my boys had, had Boy Scout stuff on both days, so we had to put a pin in it until next week. Curses! Oh, well... Well, well, that's all right. I mean, that's a that's a uh, an, a, a laudable thing for your children to be involved in. I think. Well, you know, uh, the nice thing about the Boy Scouts is it teaches very uh, Starfleet esque uh, morals and values. So, right, uh, that's no that's no bad thing. Well, what is next on the docket for that? Uh, it is. Uh, it's. Uh, I think I, I glanced at my thing. It's uh, uh, Deep Space Nine, the episode Paradise from season two. Okay. Yeah. All right. So how how are they enjoying Deep Space Nine in comparison with Next Gen? You know what's interesting is they definitely like Next Generation more. And so it's when I, I feel like what I'm doing as a dad is I know I'm I'm paying it forward because I know years from now they will have the appreciation of Deep Space Nine. So right now it's like when we have a Deep Space episode, like they don't hate it. They're not like, oh, but whenever it's Next Generation, they're like, oh, right. Mm -hmm. So there's there's a higher enthusiasm for next generation. So I I know that. And then I'm curious what happens once we make this once once Voyager gets introduced into the mix. If the equilibrium shifts in 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 the direction of Deep Space Nine, or if they just if they're like ship show, like that's their thing. Sure. I'm, I'm basically yeah, I'm yeah. doing like a sociological experiment on these kids. <laughs> as, Sounds as, like a, another another worthy goal to add to the list. As a good picture. Cicero, how how has Star Trek looked for you over the last week? Anything of of note? Anything that you've done a dive into? So you know what I I did uh, do a dive into was uh, was the Orville. So okay. I I you know I had skipped I had, by the time we recorded last week I hadn't watched. Uh, the previously aired episode of or of the Orville, I think they're up to episode four uh, as well. I am all caught up, and I would say that the Orville is more Star Trek than Discovery. Oh, provocative thought. Well, interestingly enough, Rachel and I also caught up on that show, and we noticed that the most recent episode was directed by none other than Jonathan Frakes. That is correct. So there's certainly a, uh, a, a Trek 
a, a detectable Trek DNA that's going on in that show on multiple levels. But, you know, interestingly enough, I think that's going to be something that we, uh, we talk about a little bit, okay. uh, in, just in, just in a second here. But, um, as for me, you know, I'm mostly listening still to desperate hours. Not, I didn't get through it as much as I wanted to, but I also did a little bit of a, a reread of one of my favorite Star Trek expanded universe books, which is tales of the dominion war, which is a collection of short stories that touch on what pretty much every other major Star Trek character of note was up to during that time. It gives service to what the Enterprise-E was doing. It gives service even to the surviving original series crew members that had made it into the 24th century. And, you know, I'm not as much of a, a hater of Star Trek Nemesis as some other people are, but... One of the things that definitely piqued my interest when that movie came out was that Shinzon was basically a brilliant tactician in the Dominion War, leading a bunch of Riemann shock troops, and there's a story for that in that book as well. So uh, I took I took a, a little bit of interest. I think Shinzon is one of the lesser issues of that movie overall, but maybe that's something we'll have to get into at some point down the road, because I know that that movie tends to engender a lot of strong feelings in people, to say the least. <laughs> But why don't we move on quickly to uh, a couple of news items, one of which I want to get you guys' reaction to. So, uh, last week, CBS made a pretty consequential announcement regarding Star Trek Discovery. They put out a press release that laid out how the rest of the season would be progressing. So, Originally, they had described the season as releasing in two what they called chapters, with eight episodes in the first chapter running until November, and the final seven running after the start of the new year. But now, they have extended the first chapter to include nine episodes, so we're going to be with you in 2017 through uh, the, the last episode of the year airs on November 12th, so you'll probably have the uh, last Star Trek Discovery main episode on November 14th, and then the remaining six episodes are going to finish out next year sometime. And alongside that announcement, they release the titles for next week's episode and the week following. Next week's is going to be called Choose Your Pain. And the following week's is going to be called L- Letha? Is, is that how you pronounce it? Oh, the guy on YouTube pronounced it Letha. Letha. Okay, it's, it's Greek. It's classical Greek, and it means concealment, forgetfulness, or oblivion. But, so, I mean, that stuff is all well and good. But if you... Ha- Occupy any segment of the geek circle, then you probably know that this past week was the New York Comic Con. And uh, of course, Star Trek had a presence at the New York Comic Con and specifically at a Discovery panel. They had a surprise guest uh, in the form of Michelle Yeoh, which was cool, who came up in a mask and she uh, asked a question and then she revealed herself. And not even the cast or the crew that was on on the dais seemed to know that she was there, which was pretty awesome. But... The thing that I thought was of note that I wanted to run with you guys, which kind of goes to uh, Cicero's observation about the Orville. So at the panel, writer and producer Akiva Goldsman, who we talked about last week as well in, re- in reference to uh, Spock, took it upon himself to answer a question about whether or not Discovery was fairly characterized as darker Star Trek. And he replied with a categorical, no. No real caveats on top of that, but he explained himself. He said, quote, the truth is what we've been talking about tonight when we talk about Star Trek is the characters, which is actually relatively different than what you would talk about in previous Star Treks. 
To some degree, that would be different for DS9. Discovery is a wholly serialized narrative. In that narrative, we get to tell character stories over plot, which does not suggest that we don't have plot. If Jim Kirk had to deal with Edith Keeler's death in The City on the Edge of Forever as if it were real life, it would take a whole series or season, and we can stretch those emotions out for a season on our show. Our story is the origin of the feeling that is the original series. That's why we are 10 years before TOS. But we don't start there. We get there. The name of the show is Discovery Not by Accident. It's the story of how these people discover who they are. In long-form storytelling, you get the gift of getting to start somewhere. We're layered, complex, dark, and light, because the best Star Trek is always all of those things. So... And you guys are obviously as big, if not bigger, fans of the franchise than we are. But the perennial debate, which was inevitably going to come up about whether or not Discovery is true Star Trek, seems to have arrived in the form of a vocal minority of fans. So in truth, you know, we all knew that this was going to happen. And given Goldsman's quote, your own understandings of the Trek franchise and what we've seen thus far from Discovery, what do you think? Zachy? You know, I, I, I'm, I'm, to, on some level, I'm tired of this conversation because it feels like if not Discovery, we say we ask it about the Abrams movies. If not them, we ask it about Enterprise. And if I mean, you know what I mean, going all the way back to Next Generation, that same conversation. And so, you know, my my view of this is very simple. It's very pragmatic, and it is this: Star Trek is what the owners of the franchise put the name Star Trek on. It's as simple as that. And we can either accept it or not. But to me, Star to me, Star Trek, the franchise, is like ice cream. And each iteration is a flavor. So you can say, hey, I love uh, cookies and cream, but I'm not a fan of mint chocolate chip. Well, mint chocolate chip is still ice cream, whether you like it or not. Right. <laughs> and, and that's, you know, so, so maybe, you know, maybe Voyager is mint chocolate chip. All right, cool. If you don't like, some people love, my wife loves mint chocolate chip. I do not. That's Star Trek. Well said. <laughs> Cicero. Uh, I, you know, I honestly, I don't think I could have said it any better myself. Um, the, uh, I, I mean, Star Trek is whatever is in the Star Trek universe. Um, obviously, there is a sense, um, a sense that I kind of share that there is a, there is a, a kind of a, an understanding of what your or an expectation of what Star Trek is, and and Star Trek as a television show is very procedural. Um, but this Star Trek, Star Trek Discovery, is completely serialized, and and that is why the Orville feels more like Star Trek. Than, than Discovery does in so much that it's a, it's a procedural. But I see. it's not Star Trek. It's the Orville. And Star Trek Discovery is Star Trek. So, you know, and, 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 that's, and that is definitely going to be a thing where, where the annals of history tell different stories about, about things uh, within, within the moment. You know, then uh, tell different stories than, than you would tell in the moment. And, mm-hmm. and I think that 10, 15 years from now, uh, when, when the story of discovery is all said and done and we have, we have the context of the entire series as well as some time to kind of digest it and really reflect on it. I think that people will look back on it fondly. Um, cause I, I think it's a very, very good and it's a quality show. 
The, the Orville. Sure. Uh, no, no. Discovery. Oh, oh Discovery. <laughs> Dis- yeah, I know. It's it's so, it's so weird. So so the Orville. The Orville is is what it is. It is a love letter. It is a love letter to fans of the of TNG with a very sophomoric humor bent to it. But the but the the themes within those procedural episodes are very very TNG, very very Star Trekky. Um, in fact, the latest episode was their quote unquote Q episode. Um, but but I you know and I think but I think that is it, it is what it is and that's fine for what it is. But if you really want to get into the nitty gritty of what Star Trek is and uh, this iteration of Star Trek and and you know it is. Uh, I wouldn't call it Rocky Road. Uh, maybe, maybe uh, you know, maybe uh, Cherry's Garcia from Ben and Jerry's. There you go. Um, that's that's what that's what uh, Star Trek Discovery is, and you know, and it is that, but it is still ice cream, and Star Trek is ice cream. That's the title of this episode. Sure. There you go. <laughs> Star Trek. Is you know, uh, and I I never really thought about the uh, the format like as far as procedural or serialized actually lending to the Star Trek feel. But Rachel looks like she's ready to to jump in the ring here. What do you have to say about this? I wish the internet was. In 1987, so we could have some sort of record of just what general people were saying about TNG then, Mm -hmm. because I would be willing to bet money that they were like, this isn't Star Trek. This doesn't seem like Star Trek. Do you think you think geeky fans would be upset about something new that came out? (laughs) <laughs> Look at the letters pages of like Starlog magazine and stuff. It was a a an analog flame war. Yes. Yes. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I was asking Chris how like how I could get my hands on some of that because I think it would be interesting. All I could really find was like a, a New York Times art- article that uh called it really boring, but I mean <laughs> Well, and I mean, to be fair, Encounter at Farpoint isn't exactly the best example of what heights the next generation <laughs> yeah. will achieve. Yeah, I just think nostalgia is such a powerful force in your determination of whether you like something in the moment. And something new is just never, ever going to quite compare to what came before because you've developed this love for it. And that might be why the Orville sometimes feels more like Star Trek because it leans so heavily on nostalgia to to TNG, you know, down to the like uncomfortable gender plots right, right, right. that <laughs> they both have. So yeah. Well, I can certainly attest to uh, to the power of nostalgia just in my former occupation as a comic book retailer. I mean, our store was one of the oldest comic book stores probably in the country. It started in 1982, and it's still in business today. So uh, we always had, you know, some of our older clientele who have been reading literally since the 60s when Marvel first started to change the face of how the comic book medium looked and the kinds of stories you could tell with those characters. I mean, we had people from the 60s generation of readers, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, all the way up through, through my own. And I would often get people like when the new 52 at DC, their big universal reboot from the 2011 came out, we had people who said, oh, Crisis on Infinite Earths did this so much better. Right. right. Or, uh, or even one reader who said the Flash of Two Worlds was the only really good exploitation of the multiverse. And that was the first one. So nostalgia is definitely a powerful force. Just even as a comic book reader, I like stuff from 10 years ago more than I do now. But I also recognize that... It's catering to a bit of a different audience. 
So uh, very good points all around. I think uh, that's always going to be good fodder for conversation. But why don't we move on to talking about this latest episode, The Butcher's Knife Cares Not for the Lamb's Cry. So before we actually dive into the specifics of the episode, Cicero, why don't you start us off with just your brief first impressions of what you think of when you think of Star Trek Discovery Episode 4. The, uh, I, I think my first impressions overall with the episode is we have gained, we've gained new insights about the main characters, um, both on the Starfleet side and the Klingon side, not all of which have been good for me. Hmm. Okay. Excellent. Sister, or I'm sorry, Zachy. Uh, initial impression, you know, I, I like that we got, we got more heavily into the, the narrative of the show. I, uh, my, my overall impression was number one, I like that the, the, the main subplot, I guess you'd call it, um, vis-a-vis Michael Burnham and, and this creature felt very classically Trek-ish. Yes. Uh, right. And I'm assuming we'll get into that in a little bit. I also really liked, oh. um, seeing captain Lorca in command of the ship. And I thought, I thought he had a command style that was very different, unique. And I remember I, one thought I had was in our last episode, I remember comparing him somewhat to, to captain Jellico, which is either a good comparison or a bad comparison. But at one point he's like, get it done, which is like, that's Jellico's catchphrase <laughs> as opposed to the more, more genteel make it. So, you know, and I, I, that jumped out at me. Sure. Rachel. Um, I really started to feel that we're getting into more of an overarching theme of the exploration versus military nature of uh, the Discovery's mission. Mm -hmm. So you asked me or you asked us about that last week um, and whether you thought that was going to be uh, an ongoing theme. And now I th- I'm pretty sure that it is. They're laying the, the, the dolly track, as it were, yes. in that direction. Yeah. And um, I mean, my just general first impressions are that this might be my favorite one so far. So I'm going to be interested to see over the course of this conversation uh, where we line up and where we diverge on some of the specifics. So let's start off with... Uh, I guess the subplot subplot with the Klingon segment specifically. So the albino Klingon, whom we know as Valk, he has control of Takuvma's followers. So this, uh, this apparently more nationalistic and hyper-religious uh, alliance of certain Klingons, he has basically been the heir apparent. And we, we pick up, it's about six months after the battle at the Binary Stars, and we see that those Klingons aren't in particularly good shape. Uh, they're hungry, their uh, provisions are running low, and they are trying to get their ship operational again so they can contribute to the war effort with the Federation. Uh, but we see a wrench kind of thrown into the mix with a member, interestingly enough, especially from a canonical perspective, a member of the House of Kor, whose name is Call, played by actor Kenneth Mitchell, and he apparently shows up first as uh, is kind of an extension of an olive branch between the other houses of the Klingon Empire and Takuvma's uh, followers. 
But Call ends up undermining Vok's position of leadership and kind of steers his followers away because I guess when you're hungry, the idea of eating again is uh, it's it's persuasive, generally speaking. But um, uh, Zachy, I remember from the first episode that you had some issues with the with getting too deep into the weeds of Klingon world. I think is how you described yeah. it. So how did this stuff strike you in this and it's I really I th- that hasn't changed, you know. I'm just it at some point I'm just hearing a bunch of guttural nonsense and I know that that's like hugely offensive to like mega fans of of the whole Klingon thing, which is cool. I respect that, but I think for dramatic narrative purposes, can we just have the conceit of hearing them speak English so that like this does it, this isn't as agonizing as it is because we're talking about a solid third of the episode is just guttural grunts, <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah, I can I can definitely see that. Cicero, how about you? So, uh, if you guys remember from from at least uh, I, I guess it was a couple of a uh, couple of episodes ago, uh, I was talking about I was hoping that we'd get to hear about more of the the conflict within within and and some of the motivations of the klingon uh forces because you know right now they are just or at least at that point they were just uh just these you know fanatical zealots um and i was hoping that in this episode that we would see less zealotry and more motivation and that's not what we got. We got more zealotry. Like it, it, it's so. Uh, um, one of the things that you didn't talk about was Alex Kurt, Kurtman at uh, at the at the uh, New York Comic Con responding to a question about the primal savageness of the faces of the Klingons and how they they looked very African and and if that was very deliberate with the, you know, these huge wide noses. Oh, see, uh, I didn't even know about this. Please. Right. Oh, oh, oh yeah. So they, so, uh, that was a question that was asked, uh, to Alex Kurtzman and he responded with, uh, there's, you know, there's, I won't go into it now, but there is an explanation as to why, uh, the, the Klingons look the way that they do. We will get into it later on in, in the season. So, I mean, and, and that's fine. And I, I'm willing to give, the showrunner's grace on coming up with a narrative that makes sense and and uh, having an ideology that makes sense for these characters for the the antagonists um and and you know as the episode goes on we can find we find that they are they started fractured they came together under Takuvma and and now they're fractured again but the the one underlying uh point is that they're still st- still kind of religious zealots and it and it kind of it, it 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 rings a little not hollow for me but it, it it's a little dangerous for me because you got you've got this people making the analog of the klingons being africans as one from one standpoint and then if you listen to their motivations and you listen to the things that they have to say after you've read you know dozens and dozens of subtitles uh, because we're not fluent in Klingon, you can make the analog that these are, you know, they're akin to what we, what Americans believe are uh, 
uh, Islamic radicals or, you know, Middle Eastern radicals uh, because of the that same level of, of zealotry and, and just, um, you know, this this belief that we've got to destroy the enemy with, you know, by by all costs and not and and keep ourselves pure and you know not be infected by their technology and and that you know so that kind of disappointed me that that's where we are right now um i was hoping that we would get something different but uh, you know i i can kind of understand it and like i said i'm i'm willing to give them grace to uh to see where this goes and and to see hopefully that there's some more nuance to who the Klingons are and what they're doing, whether it be from Volk the albino and and his new paramour, or or whether it be from the other houses, um, I'm hoping that there's more to the Klingons than than what we have right now. Sure, absolutely, Rachel. I thought this part was the Klingon stuff was just so slow, and I was just thinking about other things in it. Like, why don't they have hair? The Klingons have <laughs> hair. And the other, beautiful hair. Yeah, wonderful hair and braids and all all kinds of stuff. And then just, I don't know, just, just thinking about how are they going to explain how they look and mm-hmm. just getting bogged down in the details because not much is happening on screen. Yeah, and, you know, we watched the, uh, the review of um – of the last episode that was done by the awesome YouTube channel Trexpertise by Kyle O'Sullivan. And, uh, you know, he made a point in that review that I thought was well taken. The last time that Star Trek actually significantly changed the look of the Klingons, it had an effect on the canon. And it had a, it had a creative point that was really interesting to watch unfold. So it'll be interesting to see if that happens this time, too. Because they do look different. You can't really deny that. And if it's in the continuity... Yeah, but on the other hand, that kind of set this precedent that they're going to explain every time that they change the way that aliens look or something sure, like that. And, yeah. and it's just maybe maybe you could just change them. And, right. And I, I can I can see the and merit. It's just, it has me on the lookout for, oh, how are they going to explain this? And I wish I could just be kind of like, oh, they changed it because they want to change it because they have good makeup now. <laughs> Eight million dollars an episode. Yeah. I would think so. <laughs> Uh, but you know, to, to Cicero's point about what Alex Kurtzman had to say, maybe there will be some kind of more creative story point that sees this sect of Klingon. Maybe it's an aristocracy, you know, maybe that's why they're more ornate than we're used to seeing them, or maybe they'll just go with it. I mean, it could go either way. That's kind of the problem uh, with, uh, creating a show in the middle of a timeline of a, of an established universe. Um, which is something that they still have to address overall with Discovery, um, the technology, the wardrobe, uh, the Klingons uh, being being one of the or three of the most glaring uh, kind of changes, dramatic changes from uh, what we know the technology to be at this in this time period and what we know people to look like in this time period versus how they look on this show. So, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, sure. Well, uh, I, I do want to move on to the next topic, uh, but before I do real fast, just want to call out to people who are listening to this, watch Blood Oath, the season two episode of Deep Space Nine, because it might have some interesting effects, particularly when it comes to the House of Kor and Valk, maybe. I'm almost there. We'll have to talk about like it in two the episodes future. <laughs> awesome. Okay, perfect. So maybe maybe next time then we'll we'll be ready but either way i think it's it definitely warrants a conversation but let's get into the 
the central conflict for Michael Burnham. Uh, conflict or re- developing relationship. Michael uh, is obviously brought on as a member of Discovery's crew in the science division to figure out what's going on with the creature that was recovered from the Glen. And uh, initially, she's assigned to figure out how to weaponize it because it was so unstoppable on board that ship against Klingon soldiers. And it didn't really seem to have a scratch on it. Obviously, things took a little bit of a different direction. Uh, We lost Commander Ellen Landry, the chief security officer of the Discovery, which I was certainly surprised about. But uh, so we learn more about the Tardigrade. We learn more about this creature that has now become affectionately known as Ripper. So this appears to be kind of the the most potent uh, aim of this episode is developing our perception of who, of what Ripper exactly is in the context of the show at large. Rachel, how did this strike you? What are your thoughts on it? So I really liked the way it was presented in, in the episode. Um, so as a scientist, I feel like this uh, this plot kind of exemplified a um a thing that we sort of deal with with which is the uh the idea is to um do research based on things that we're curious about versus to do research to achieve a specific short-term goal and so michael burnham is given the short-term goal of weaponize this thing but she wants to she's curious about it and she wants to learn just generally about it and by learning just about it in general without specifically trying to weaponize it, she is able to figure out a really um, amazing new function for it. And um, something that's mentioned a lot in uh, in science is this speech that Donald Rumsfeld gave about terrorism, <laughs> where he talked about, you know, there are the things we know. Unknown there, knowns. There's the, the known unknowns. So there's gaps in our knowledge that we know need to be filled but then there's the unknown unknown <laughs> and there's the, the so there's the things that we don't know that we don't know and and uh, ripper was his his function was something that they didn't know that they didn't know right and and the only way that we can really find out what we don't we don't know we don't know is by exploring our curiosity and just just going wherever the research takes us so that's kind of what i got out of it which i think is probably not what everyone would get out of it <laughs> <laughs> zaki how about you with ripper you know i i think that there were a couple of things that jumped out at me. I mean, I think, I think number one, the, the creature is a vehicle for exactly the spirit of discovery, no pun intended that the, that the franchise should be about. So I, I appreciated uh, that we, through, through the presence of this creature, we, we got the sense of, of number one, the idea, you know, it's a very Gene Roddenberry idea. The thing that we think is out to get us, maybe we just don't understand it. And, uh, you know, yeah. and, and this is this is right out of that. And so I, I appreciated that it gave Burnham a chance to become Starfleet again. Right. You know, uh, that being said, I thought that uh, the way it the way it's like Burnham was the only one who had that inclination to be like, well, let's try to figure this out. That felt out of sorts to me. I think Commander Landry may be the dumbest Starfleet <laughs> character I've ever seen. And I include like every red shirt I've ever seen, you know? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could probably make a, a pretty reasonable case for uh, you know looking or leaping before she right. looked, right? I mean, that's absolutely what happened. Cicero, how about you? You seem to have been uh, impressed by I, Ripper. I have been affected. Say. I am uh, full Team Ripper. I'm wearing my hashtag Team Rippers T-shirt right now. Um, the <laughs> The thing that really struck me more so than Ripper was was the statement that Michael Burnham made, which was that uh, and I, I, I'm going to I'm going to butcher this um, is that the alien is the alien and uh, it can only be what it is. And you can't you can't uh, you can't put your expectations on it to de- to define what it is. Um, and, and, you know, and that, that's a, a bad paraphrasing of, of the comments that she made, but, but again, not only was she talking about Ripper, but she was talking about herself, of course, and, and, uh, uh, Chief Ellen, uh, the dearly departed, uh, was able to pick up on that right away. I will defend her Ellen, uh, just a little, uh, prior to her grabbing the, the phaser and, uh, and opening the cage and and in so much by saying that whether she, she was loyal, she was loyal to, to, to the captain to her death and whether she agreed necessarily with all of the actions that he was taking, that he's, that he's taking to try and achieve his goal. She was a hundred percent focused on helping him achieve his goal. And 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 sure. in that case, she decided that it didn't matter what other type of, you know, what other type of scientific benefits Ripper uh could could have. It was, you know, the captain told me to to uh you know weaponize it so that's what we're gonna do. And it's you know it's kinda like uh if your parents tell you to rake the rake the leaves you rake the leaves, and if there's an anthill under the leaves when you're raking them, it doesn't matter. They just told you to rake those leaves, so you know. So you wind up with the ants all over you. Um, <laughs> but but uh, yeah, I I really like Ripper. I I am I'm very 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 interested to find out uh, where uh, Michael Burnham's or Burnham's gonna if she's going to wind up uh, being not only the first mutineer but the second mutineer. By by doing something <laughs> to save what I'm assuming is um, a, a a species for for which she sh- she shows some affinity some some level of empathy whether or not whether they're friends um, per se is still kind of up in the air but but she definitely has some affection for for the creature. Yeah, sure, and you know, for, just from my perspective, this is when. I really got kind of like Zachy. I really got the the traditional Trek vibes off of this because uh, obviously Star Trek as a franchise is built on the idea of using the knowledge at your disposal in order to try and find a better way, a way beyond uh, what is typical, a way beyond violence. And this is definitely something that came uh, came very close to hitting a very regular trek kind of vibe and i'm glad to see that the show moved in that direction Uh, i love ripper too i didn't think that i would think he was cuddly by the end of the episode are we sure it's even a he we're just just kind of 
I feel like they might not have he and she. Yeah, you're probably right. Uh, Well, Ripper, just in general, intelligent, maybe cute. I would not have thought that Ripper was cute, but Ripper's cute. Damn it. So, no, it was it was definitely a pretty interesting place for them to take, uh, I guess, a new character that was introduced in such a, a bloody and violent fashion on the show thus far. Uh, yeah, and as far as Commander Landry is concerned, not too surprising, sort of like with Captain George O, since we knew that she, that she was going to be a guest star, I guess she probably wasn't going to be long for this world, but still a little surprising, just in the way that she was dispatched. I didn't really expect that to happen. But weirdly enough, through the death of Commander Landry, that's when we actually got our first look at another member of Discovery's senior staff, the chief medical officer, Dr. Hugh Culber, who was played by actor Wilson Cruz. And uh, obviously we don't have too much to go off of with this character, but he does seem to sort of fall in line with some of the other members of the ship's command crew in the sense that he has a sardonic sense of humor and seems like he comes from a little bit of a darker perspective. But did anybody get any other impressions from, uh, from Dr. Uh, Culber? I, I definitely got a, uh, a, there was, there was a little bit of sexual tension between him and Stanitz. Um, yeah, that's, yeah. Oh, did you see? I didn't yeah, even. There, there are going to be a couple. They, oh, they are either they? are I... already, or they are going to be, but that's part of the, that's baked into the cake. Yeah. I am so bad at picking this stuff up. I I, I didn't I, get it either, Chris. Well, still, I mean... But then I, I barely remember this character, too. I think I was taking notes at the time, so... Right, well, either way, I mean... So he's definitely going to have to be someone that we watch a little more closely. But, you know, like like I said, the, the we, first, we haven't uh, had g- a lot. gay couple in uh, Star Trek, uh, or continuing gay couple, it's yeah, kind of a big deal. Oh, it's absolutely very significant, and it just adds to what we talked about over the last couple of episodes with representation. I mean, it it matters, and what better franchise to take it forward than Star Trek? So very cool to see. And I'll be interested to see the uh, the icy exterior of Stamets maybe melted a little bit by a significant other, just in general. I think that would uh, give us a, a new perspective on on what he brings to the table beyond Well, uh, I, I, I really did around. like Stamets's, uh his his kind of line in the sand that he that he had drawn with the captain um regarding yeah. w- what they were trying to do with this technology and you know and the the fact is that discovery is built around the spore the spore transwarp spore technology um i'm sure there's an official name for it and i'm just messing it up but um you know the fact that he was like hey man this is we should we should be using this for discovery we should be using this for exploration we should be using this to to better both man and you know starfleet kind um federation kind and and Lorca was like no you're going to use it how i say to use it this is a ship of war we're at war uh this is you know this is what we're doing and Weirdly enough, he seems like he might be the most principled crew right, member yes, that we've come yes. across so far, even though he might be the coldest. But, uh, well, that that in, invariably brings us to Captain Lorca. And uh, just I'll share my perspective real fast. The thing that immediately jumped out at me was from him was at the end of the episode. I mean, obviously, he has his aims. He wants to try and weaponize Ripper. He wants to try and get the spore drive up and running. And they have a, a very vested interest in getting to an embattled Federation colony that's under siege by Klingons. 
But the thing that really struck me for some reason, you barely ever see him sitting in the center seat. You know, he was standing up and in the middle of the fight at the end of the episode with the three Klingon uh, birds of prey, he was composing. Did you notice that? He was standing at the front of the bridge and he was moving his arms like he was a composer of war. And I thought that that was a really, really interesting take on him. But Captain Lorca obviously is getting a lot of different feelings from Star Trek fans. Zachy, how did Lorca strike you here? You know, I got to say, I'm liking what I see of him so far. Uh, and I make a distinction between liking and admiring because I don't know if I admire him yet. But I think as a character, he is so interesting. I don't think we've ever gotten a, a, certainly a Starfleet captain like this who ostensibly is one of our protagonists. We've gotten, you know, nut bar Starfleet captains. But it's always filtered through the perspective of Jim Kirk or, or, or you know, Captain Picard being like, no, don't, don't be doing that, you know? Uh, he, he is clearly doing, you know, un-Starfleet things, but he's doing it in service of certainly what he would argue is the greater good. I mean, the, the moment when he pipes through the ship, the, the audio of the suffering on the colony, I thought that was so fascinating because it's like, yeah. he, like, what are they supposed to do about it? What is the crew supposed to do other than what they're already doing? Right. So it's this extra level of like a guilt trip almost, you know? And I, yeah, I, I just, and, and so, so I think he's fascinating. Like that's, I, 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 I don't know where I'll be on him when, when this entire, this novel that we're watching, when we reach, you know, the, the, the end of it. But for now, I mean, I, I want to see more of him. I want to see what's going to happen next with him. And I think that's certainly when you're talking about a serialized show like this, that's a huge, uh, that's a win. I would put it as, you know. Yeah, emotional manipulation by piping through suffering on the entire PA system. That's certainly not something we've seen before. Right. Uh, Rachel? Yeah, I definitely thought that was a interesting management technique. <laughs> <laughs> like cracking an invisible whip. Yeah. Um, I was really interested in Saru's little comment that he made to Michael when he was kind of throwing shade at her, but he was saying, well, he said something to the effect of, well, maybe you do fit in with Lorca, like, like that was a bad thing. So mm -hmm. I think it's really interesting that Saru is the first officer, right? Yeah. And uh, he doesn't seem to have a super high opinion of Lorca. Doesn't um, seem that way. Yeah, I, no. I, th I thought it was interesting. But yeah, I too am very interested in in him. And I think um, that there's a lot of really interesting acting choices being made mm. that add really add to the character. Yeah, Jason Isaacs definitely gives him a transfixing kind of presence. Yeah. Like whenever he's on the screen, you can't really yeah, take your I, eyes off. You know, uh, Cicero? Where last week or, uh, yeah, last week we, you know, I was talking about him being Captain Taxidermy and he just really seemed like, <laughs> You know, he was he was heading full force into uh, uh, a heel turn, and um, you you really get to understand you know the the nuance that I think is lacking in the Klingons. I think is in full force with with Captain Lorca and and the rest of the, and the rest of the Discovery crew. Um, the, yeah, like you know, I thought. Man, this this uh, him catching what we now know as Ripper, and and you know taking a captive was going to be like this big secret that would take a few episodes to unfold. And before we even hit the open, he had he had shared his his capture with with Michael Burnham and and put her in charge 
of figuring this thing out. So I was like, oh, well, okay. So he's not keeping it a secret, clearly. Um, that's interesting. And then of course, yeah, that the, the fact is that you think this guy is just a cold hearted SOB, uh, while he's arguing with Stamets and he's, you know, trying to do all the things that he's doing and he's, you know, and he's just forcing them to use this technology that they're not ready to use. But then he pipes through the, the, that last transmission from the mining colony and you realize that his job is, you know, like he said, I'm good at war and his job is to win this war. Mm-hmm. And he is he is going to do that uh, at, you know, at all costs. But there is a reason for it. It's, you know, he's trying to save the Federation. He's trying to save humanity. Uh, he's trying to stop the Klingon threat. And that is probably more important, at least in his eyes, more important than you liking the things that he does or thinking that he's a good person. And he doesn't give any, uh, he, he certainly doesn't give any indications that he cares necessarily about what people think of him. Uh, well, so we're, we're getting near the, the end of our discussion points for the episode itself. But one thing I did want to briefly touch on the, uh, deceptively emotional final part of the episode that we saw the last will and Testament of captain Philippa Giorgio, uh, I I didn't cry. What do you? Why do you think that? No, I wasn't doing anything. Don't don't worry about it. Zachy, what do you think of uh, of her parting words to her protege, Michael Burnham? Well, I mean, I I think obviously it's it's very bittersweet because she's giving her uh, this valediction under the assumption that she's talking to a captain, right? And uh, that's the extra tragedy. But I mean, uh, take care. And take care of the ones you're supposed to take care of. I think that I'm screwing it up, but that's I. I have no doubt that's going to be something that that plays out over the course of the season. But what occurred to me also is I was glad to get this f- sort of la- final image of of uh, uh, Captain Giorgio to to sort of wash away the the earlier description of the Klingons right. eating her. Yeah. Oh which my god. Which I found horrifying. I'm so actually surprised <laughs> we didn't mention that earlier. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Locked it yeah. out. And, yeah, and they yeah. Describe yes. it in such detail. It's like, ah, oh, dude. Yeah, I mean, I guess in the end, not really that surprising necessarily, but definitely uh, visceral and shocking. Uh, so, oh boy. Cicero, the last will uh, and testament was, of Captain you know, Giorgio. Obviously, it was beautiful. And no, I did not shed any tears. I'm a man, damn it. Uh, <laughs> But uh, but what what it made me think about was just how much Michael Burnham's fate is tied to the death of Captain Georgia, that had Captain Georgia lived or she had gotten her back to the uh, the Shenzhou before before she could have taken her before she took her last breath, I think there would have been she would have made a case for there not to be a court martial of of Michael Burnham and she would have been the captain of some ship. Um I I, I think definitely think there's yeah. the potential there. And then of course, um, you know, her leaving her leaving uh Captain Jaja leaving Michael Burnham uh, essentially, ostensibly her family's most prized possession, something that had been in her family for for hundreds of years. And uh, I think that the telescope is going to be an allegory for 
for something going forward, um, you know, looking into the stars or seeing beyond where you are right right at this at that particular moment uh, in time and to see something far away. Yeah, definitely a, a emotional moment uh, for that last episode. So, uh, and Captain Giorgio, she's such a cool character anyway that it's hard not to want to see more of her in general. I mean, she she's really cool. She's really cool in the book that Rachel and I are reading. So, more of her would not be a bad thing. But uh, one of the other questions that I had on here in relation to the episode, Cicero, why don't we start with you? What do you think? the title is referring to well i i mean i think it's it's definitely uh you know it's a double entendre of sorts um because it you know obviously the the first thing that you think of is ripper um that the the and the the butcher of course is locker and he doesn't care that that this animal is or that this this being is something other than what he wants it to be. Mm-hmm. And, sure. and uh, you know, as far as he's concerned, it's a lamb. And whether or not it's the most intelligent lamb that has ever walked uh, on, on in, you know, in history, or whether it's the dumbest is immaterial to him, is the fact that the lamb has sweet meat. That's and that's all that he's worried about. Um, I think that there, the, the other part of that is that you know Burnham Burnham herself is is a lamb who's crying and Stamets is a lamb who's crying um and and Locker Locker is still the butcher um and uh if you look if you listen to Saru when he is talking to in their relationship I, I can't get enough of just the the layers of the relationship between Michael Burnham and, 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 uh, uh, you know, Lieutenant Commander Saru, um, their relationship is great. They, I, I mean, I could watch an hour of the two of them kind of going back and forth and just how much Saru really cares for Burnham, despite how much it, it eats him up that he cares for her. Um, so I, I think that's, that's really unique, but, but Saru is, is basically saying that Lorca is the butcher and, and, and to, you know, to a certain extent, we, we're all lambs because he's, you know, he's the one that, that dictates exactly what it is that we're going to do. And ultimately you're going to do what he wants you to do. Yeah, definitely. Rachel. Well, I, I kind of thought it might relate to how the Klingons were just slaughtering those people on that uh, planet that they were going to go rescue. Mm. And um, that there's sort of a relationship between, you know, those people being slaughtered and the abuse or the the torture of Ripper to save them and um, how you're sort of making this choice of uh, – who's you know who's going to be the lamb and who's going to be the butcher and um sort of replacing one one group suffering with another entity's suffering yeah sure and interestingly enough the planet uh that the federation colony was on corvan 2 was in an episode of or at least referred to in an episode of the next generation uh and the 
environment was briefly described in that next gen episode new ground and it looked a whole lot like what we saw in uh in this latest episode of discovery so just another little point that they're paying attention to some of the longer standing continuity elements they didn't need to use a planet that we've heard of before but the fact that they decided to i think is is pretty cool it means that they're throwing fans like us a little bit of a bone when it comes to uh referencing canon uh, you know, I think you guys might be both right about the title. I mean, the title itself, uh, The Butcher's Knife Cares Not for the Lamb's Cry. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it could be referring to the Klingons. It could be referring to Lorca. Maybe it is actively referring to both of them. Um, because Lorca and the Klingons seem to share some uh, some unsaid tendencies as far as their predilections for war. And it's it's really unsettling to see and i think that's where some of the um some of the doubters of this show overall are starting to get turned off at least a little bit by this emphasis on darkness and warfare but you know like we talked about at the top of the show with what akiva goldsman said i mean the original series is the end point for however long discovery ends up being but we are still seeing elements of the lineage of star trek particularly as it related to Ripper and the scientific discovery surrounding Ripper that Michael found out about. So I would encourage fellow Star Trek fans, if you're thinking of maybe not going with discovery to keep with it, because uh, I think we've, we've seen just the beginning as far as how this fits into the larger cosmology of, of Star Trek overall. But uh, yeah, a, another great conversation with our panel. Much appreciated to everybody. And uh, we only have one brief uh, element to get to with uh, listener feedback this week. So let's open up the old communicator. So as you probably know, if you've been listening to the show, I have requested that people write some reviews to let us know how we're doing. And one listener actually availed himself of that request. He actually sent it in a Facebook message because it's a little critical. And he didn't think that I would probably be predisposed to reading it. But I'm not going to read the whole thing because it is long and I appreciate the detail. But it comes from a listener named Max. And his criticism revolves around the level of detail that we go into as far as the episode content is concerned. He mentions listening to a Game of Thrones recap podcast. He doesn't, he's not really in an economic situation where he can afford uh, an HBO service on top of other streaming services. And now CBS is coming out and asking for more money for a uh, specific streaming service for the network, which is the only way you can get new episodes of Discovery. So what he says is that in our title, obviously, Discovery Debrief, the word debrief indicates a military-level recapping of specific events, and this is what I was expecting. This is not a debrief, but rather a love-in. Don't get me wrong, I love love-ins, especially regarding Star Trek and Star Wars, but based on the second half of the podcast's title, I expected a debrief. Each act of each episode in detail. That's what should begin each episode, and then we can go as meta as we like. So he thinks that we need to do our job a little bit better because uh, it will help give context to people who have not seen the show. So he, he gives us a rating of three stars at the end. That could easily pop up to five, he says, with a show reformat. So 
Max, again, thank you. Um, we always appreciate anyone who's going to take the time to uh, give us any constructive criticism. I open any criticism, especially if it's constructive, probably mostly if it's constructive, as my panelists can probably attest to for their own shows and their own endeavors. However, I do think that there is a bit of a response that I can give to you. And I mean, it's not like we are not open to providing a more in-depth recap, but there are a couple of inhibiting factors that I think keep us from doing that practically. And the first is our panel size. We have four people, four very knowledgeable Star Trek fans on this show who want to jump in at every possible opportunity in order to give as media perspective from longtime franchise fans as we can. So if we decided then uh, to avail ourselves of your recommendation and go into really specific and exhaustive detail about the episode content, that would probably significantly inflate the size of a particular episode, which, uh, I mean, it has a cost for potential listeners of the show. It has a cost for us. It has a cost for my hard drive space and for editing time. Um, and we all have full-time jobs in addition to the fact that we love getting together every week to talk about Star Trek. So that's what kind of makes it a little unreasonable from our personal perspectives. And the second is the second part of our title. So the actual definition of the word debrief as a verb is to question someone, typically a soldier or spy about a completed mission or undertaking as a noun. It's a series of questions about a completed mission or undertaking. So in the analogy you bring up, we're actually not the soldiers on the mission that are recounting everything in a formal report. We're the cross-examiners that ask the questions of the mission as a whole for the people that have already experienced it. That's not to say that we don't have strong feelings about uh, the affordability of yet another streaming service, which if you listen to the first episode, we certainly have. Um, but we do go into a recording with the expectation that a listener has watched the latest episode and is looking for a supplemental experience from knowledgeable franchise fans. But I think that your point is a valid one, and we're certainly open to revisiting the format if more details wanted from listeners. Uh, so we'll have an internal conversation about that later. But if you're listening to this and feel similarly to Max, then please feel free to let us know however you can. But that being said, we appreciate your thoughtful submission, and we sincerely hope that you stick with us going forward. But if we're not for you, then there's certainly no hard feelings from us, because you're among friends. Well said. Cicero, what do you think? Do you think detail is something that uh, that we should go into, or, or uh, are you happy with the format as it well, stands? Well, currently, I'm happy with the format as it stands. Uh, I, I mean, I think that uh, I think that everything that you said was was spot on. Um, that uh, the expectation, at least from my perspective, is that uh, the listeners are looking looking to us for uh, supplemental information uh, to to kind of piggyback off of their viewing experience and not uh, not as a uh, not as something to to replace the viewing experience. Um, so, um, yeah, I, like I, I would personally recommend to Max that, uh, you know, I, it's unfortunate that it is, that it is an, yet another cost for another streaming service and that you don't have the ability to, to access it right away. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm not exactly sure what you can do with that. Um, because if we, if we did go over it, each and every act 
in agonizing detail, the show would be triple the triple the time that it currently is, and that's that's not yeah, tenable. Probably, probably be yeah, like three yeah, hours long, yeah, right, Rachel? And and the CBS police would probably kick down. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> well, and another another recommendation too for people who are listening to this who are looking for a more in depth uh, recap. It's not immediate, of course, but a great Star Trek resource in general is Memory Alpha. Uh, it's an exhaustive Star Trek encyclopedia. If you're a big fan, I'm sure that you probably visit it every day like I do uh, in some respect or another. Uh, so, you know, there are places where you can get that. Uh, if you were looking for us to provide that, I mean, we can certainly examine the idea of, of changing the format a little bit. But right now, I think we're, we're getting into a decent groove and uh, we'll just see how things go in the future. So, uh, again, thank you for writing, Max. But that's probably going to end up doing it for Episode 3 of Discovery Debrief. Uh, we, we we tried to run a little bit faster on this one because we don't want to inflate too much listening time. Uh, and that's why I saved the programming notes for the end. But, um, like always, you know, we hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please like and follow us on our social media channels. If you'd be so kind, as you probably just heard, we'd like it if you wrote a review for the show, whether it's on iTunes or Facebook or Podbean or whatever you can find. It only takes a minute and we'll be happy to read your review on the air when it's posted. If you have any questions, please feel free to follow the show on Twitter at DSC Debrief, where you can also find all of our individual Twitter handles. And feel free to send us questions through Twitter, our Facebook page, or by emailing us at hailingfrequencies at discoverydebrief.com. Please be sure to set your courses for this feed so you can come along with us next week. So from Zachy, from Rachel, from Cicero, I'm Chris. Please come back next time. And until then, go boldly, my friends. Yeah.